Uh, hey, how we doing? How we doing? Good. I'm going to open with prayer, and then we're going we're gonna to roll. Is that cool? All right. Father, we just invite your presence in this room. God, we, we long to know you. We long to know you. We long to experience your presence. God, you, you, are, you are so good. You are so much better than our minds can even comprehend. And so, Jesus, I just ask for, uh, for you to be touching our minds this morning, to be touching our hearts, to be softening our hearts. There's just some advice that was given to me a few months ago, and I think that it's, it's for now that we would have uh, a lot of us for, for the past season have had uh, soft skin and a hard heart. And I just pray right now, Lord, that you would give us uh, hard skin and soft hearts. Hard skin and soft hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to the vineyard. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel a little bit alone in the world. Uh, there are times that I feel afraid. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that I love the protest songs of the 60s so much. Because when I listened to them, like when I listened to Bob Dylan sing Masters of War this week, I felt like he was reading my mind. They, they connect with us, right? And, you know, it's, it's been a heavy week. Obviously, Putin invades Ukraine, and my wife is eight months pregnant, and I'm experiencing the... the uh, existential pressures of the, the order of the world around me shifting and the order of my personal world shifting. And I just want to be vulnerable about that because, you know, uh, I've, been, I've been talking to God about it. And I think it's important that we just hold moments like this before one another in community. I, I hope that we have opportunities like that in the groups this week. And, you know, sometimes I fear my fear is that, and I know that it's not true, but sometimes my fear is that God might not do anything to help me. And, and sometimes I fear that God is far off because that's been told to me in my life. And when I talk with people, I feel like there's a general anxiety that kind of lives beneath the surface of a lot of our lives that God might be far away, that he might not want to talk with us, that he... Uh, might not intervene, right? Have you ever felt that way? And we feel tension because we know that as Christians, we're supposed to be happy. We're supposed to be joy carriers. We're supposed to keep our love on, right? Have you heard that before? We're supposed to, uh, to be friendly to people and pray for them and help them when, we're in the, when they're in trouble. And we're supposed to pray for their, their ailments and pay for their groceries and bring them hope when you know, they lose a loved one, and that's the role that we're supposed to fill in the world, but sometimes we're exhausted because we're not completely sure if God actually has our back. It can be exhausting, can't it, when we're not sure? And, you know, the longest-running struggle for a lot of us is that God isn't safe. Josh touched on this a little bit last week when he talked about the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God. The longest-running struggle for a lot of us is that God isn't safe that he's the author of everything, good and bad. And that as Christians, we're, we're supposed to have answers, right? We're supposed to have answers for the world. We've been told that Jesus is the answer for every problem. Have you heard people say that? 
Jesus is the answer for every problem. But we, we need to have a firm grasp on what that means if we're going to go around saying that to people, right? Because we can't afford to go around giving people false impressions of who this Jesus might be. And, and so, you know, we call this the gospel, this message about who Jesus is, about who God is to us. We call it the gospel. And I believe that we've been given a gospel in our American church subculture that has taught us to believe that God is far off. I think we've inherited a gospel that has some language in it and that has some ideas in it that, that make us believe that God's far off. That he can't look upon us because we're so sinful and so far from him. And we're, we're lucky that Jesus likes us because the Father sure doesn't. That's the, that's the subliminal message that we've received in this gospel that has been handed down to us. Martin Luther has often been misquoted as saying, you are like a pile of manure, ugly, repulsive, offensive, that there's nothing in you that's commendable to anyone, especially God. Have you heard this before? And, and that uh, Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, is like the first snowfall in winter, that it, uh, it covers the sight and the smell of the manure with a blanket of pure white. And, and this pile, it's still inherently manure, but now it's a covered pile because the mercy of Jesus got in the way. I even heard one preacher say that God's primary disposition toward people is enmity. Have you heard things like that? Have you heard people say things like that? We believe horrible mischaracterizations of the gospel like this, and they're burned into our minds and they're burned into our identities, especially if they were taught to us as children. They're burned into our minds and they're burned into our identities, especially if they were taught to us as children. And this was not the gospel that Jesus preached. It just plain wasn't. And last week, Josh introduced this series and he, he painted a lot of concepts with kind of a broad brush. And today I want to set the stage for the next five weeks of teaching after this uh, just by narrowing in on the gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel that Jesus actually preached, and not a cultural distortion of it. Karl Barth, some of you might know that name, he was a great Swiss theologian, he said, he warned us not to make any biblical theme, not to make any principle or idea central other than the name Jesus Christ. And Christ alone unifies all scripture. So when we look at the Bible, when we look at the Word of God from the perspective of the centrality of Jesus, we realize that his message and his ministry and his self-understanding, the way that Jesus understood who he was, all those things are inseparably tied to this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is talking about everywhere he goes, everything he does. He's talking about the kingdom. He announced the kingdom. His parables explained it, and his miracles bore witness to the presence of the kingdom. And the theme of the kingdom, as it is preached by Jesus, unites the whole flow of biblical truth, from Moses through the prophets and the writings and the gospels and the letters and revelation. It's all tied together by this one stitch 
of the kingdom of God that, that holds together the, the fabric of the biblical story. And that's why this series is called The Kingdom Story, because when we say the kingdom story, what we mean is that the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached is the thing that holds together the whole, the whole train of thinking and the whole uh, timeline of biblical thought. Does that make sense? Okay, good. I was worried. So to start, we're going to focus on the meaning of the word gospel, because for the rest of the series, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. But if we're going to talk about the gospel of the kingdom of God, we kind of have to understand, like, what are we talking about? So Jesus' gospel sounded like this. This is going to be our key text for today that we're going to kind of keep circling back to. In Matthew 4, 16 and 17, Jesus is kind of kicking off his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. And he's, he's in a, a region of Capernaum where Jews, Capernaum is just a place in the Middle East, it's not really that important if you know where it is, where Jews had been held captive by the kingdom of Assyria for many, many years. They'd been oppressed, and Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people assembled in this place, where for centuries they'd been held captive by a, a kingdom, a Gentile kingdom, that had completely different values from them, that had completely different customs, completely different practices, different holidays, different ways of viewing the world, different worldviews, right? And so what he says is, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, thinking back to what we talked about a minute ago, there's some dissonance here. The message that we have inherited communicates to us that God is far off. The gospel, we've been told, is that God dislikes humanity and that Jesus has come to repair God's dislike for us. His death made a way for God to finally be able to look upon us. And, and it's only for that that God can accept us again into his family. And that is the gospel that Jesus never preached. It emphasizes our otherness from God. And it portrays God in conflict with humans. But the whole story of the Bible is the story of God trying to rescue humans. Trying to rescue us from ourselves. And so these things don't line up. But it's the most popular gospel in our land. And usually when it's preached or shared, it looks like this. And I'm going to, there was supposed to be a handout this morning, but I'm going to send it out in the, in the newsletter this week because I just didn't get to make the handout. But there are scriptures here that I'm quoting. And they're taken out of context. And they're incomplete. They're not explained well. And we didn't read the whole thing. And so we say things like, God is too holy to look on sinners. Your sin separates you from God. Some say God turned his face away from Jesus at the cross. And I'm going to explain this one because this is a big deal for some people. Some say that God turned his face away from Jesus at the cross and Jesus experienced the ultimate separation from God. After all, why else would Jesus have said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There it is. Why would he have said that? We're told that 
Because you're a sinner, it's Jesus who came and died in your place because death is what you deserved. And Jesus made a way for you to become reconciled to God. Now, there's some truth in that, but there's half-truth in that. There's half-truth in that. And we have to tell the whole story when we tell people the story of our Jesus. And I want to propose to you that these ideas do not paint an accurate, uh, accurate picture of the gospel. And there are parts of the summary that I just gave you uh, where the emphasis is all wrong. And there are other parts that are outright false. And when Jesus proclaims the gospel, it's different from these things. And before I keep going, I want to throw it over to the Bible Project. We're going to watch a short video, and we're going to keep, keep going with this concept of the gospel. So you can go ahead and throw that on. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running, and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? that despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people 
forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Aren't those cool videos? I love those, man. So the gospel Jesus preached is that God is near. The gospel Jesus preached is that God is near. And I've come to a place in my life where if I were asked to summarize the whole Bible in one sentence, I would say, God is near. If I were asked to summarize the whole life of Jesus in one sentence, it would be that God is near. If I were asked to summarize the gospel in one sentence, it would be that God is near. Many of us are familiar with C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, right? They're wonderful stories. And the second book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the most popular one, the one that's been turned into movies and stage plays many times over. Uh, in, in this story, Jadis, the white witch, demands Edmund's life because he has committed treason. And she takes him to the stone table to end his life where she will finally eliminate the threat that these children prophesied from long ago, she would eliminate the threat that they pose to her rule. And the deep magic of Narnia, the way Lewis writes, the deep magic of Narnia requires that a traitor pay with his life. And so Edmund will be killed, and the lion, Aslan, steps in, and he provides himself. He's tortured and killed on Edmund's behalf, and the stone table, here's the thing, the stone tablets, the stone table of Narnia is broken with the sacrifice of Aslan, and the rules are rewritten, and the the table of retributive justice has no power in that land any longer. That's been dealt with, 
And Aslan now has the opportunity to lead his people to victory. And then there are five more books. The thing, the thing that I think Lewis was trying to explain is that this, this death, this sacrifice, we've stopped with the second book for the most part as a culture because we've been told that that's kind of where the gospel ends. We've been told that's, that's, that's it. That's the whole story. But Lewis wrote five more books. There's more to the story. And I want to ask you a question in this story. Who is God? Who is God in the story? God is not the witch. God is not the witch. God is Aslan. And so we don't have room in our gospel for a God who looks like the witch. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We have to make sure that we're honest with the work that we're doing uh, with the Bible. And that means not chopping up scriptures to suit our argument. It means digging deep and working to understand the whole story of the Bible and getting the insight that we need about the author's intent to tell this kingdom story that Jesus himself said he was coming to proclaim. And it's my sense, after reading the Bible in its context, that God's eyes are not too pure to look on sin. Whose eyes were too pure to look on sin? Who was too righteous to eat with sinners? The Pharisees. Can I make a suggestion? God is not like a Pharisee. God is like Jesus. And so the question, you know, that I haven't answered, uh, I threw out some of these sayings that we attach to the gospel, like God turned his face away when Jesus was on the cross and Jesus experienced separation from God. That's fundamental to a lot of our theologies, right? But what's happening here is that Jesus is quoting the 22nd Psalm on the cross, He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Psalm 22, verse 1. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jesus quotes the beginning of the 22nd Psalm as he hangs on the cross. And and I just want to propose that he intended for us to have the whole thing in mind. Because he knew it really well. He knew it by heart. And so did his friends who heard him say that. They knew it by heart. And so what happens is when we continue to read the 22nd Psalm, there's a problem with this idea that God turned his face away. Because we reach verse 19. And when we keep reading Psalm 22, 19, and then I'm going to skip over to 24 to 26, there's just a lot of language in there about places in, in Israel and you know that just would confuse us. But what it says is, You, O Lord, are not far off. You, O Lord, are not far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not turned his face from him. This is a problem for our theory that God turned his face away from Jesus on the cross. He has not turned his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. 
From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. That's what we get when we keep reading. Jesus preached a version of the gospel that our culture is largely unfamiliar with. And there is nothing that you can say that will convince me that God's heart is not bursting for affection for humankind and longing for us to be reconciled to him. There's nothing you can say that will convince me that that's not the case. God is for us. God is absolutely for us. God is near. That's the gospel. Now, if you've heard me say all this, and you are are hearing me say that I don't think humanity's sin is a problem, you have completely missed the point. Because what I'm saying right now is that sin is a way bigger problem than this other perspective thinks it is. Do you hear me? Sin is a way bigger problem than this other perspective thinks it is. Because it's not something that can be covered up. It's not something that can be hidden so that God can turn his face on us again. It's not something that the, that the fresh snowfall causes to, to not to stink. It still stinks. And the problem with this presentation of the gospel that says that the mercy of Jesus is just a covering that hides us from the white-hot wrath of God, the problem with that is that it says nothing about transformation. And Jesus, in his life, said everything about transformation. He talked about being born again. He talked about being made new. He didn't talk about getting covered up and hidden from God's face. God transforms people. He doesn't hide people from himself. Jesus came to make us new. God is near to transform us, to do something completely different than just cover us up. And so the good news to you, if you are living life with Jesus and you have been told that you are a snow-covered pile of dung, you are in fact not. You are an image bearer of God. You bear his image and his likeness, and you are not a snow-covered pile of dung. You are a new creation. Amen? And if anybody tries to tell you something different, don't listen to them. Because you know the truth. You read the rest of Psalm 22. You know that, in fact, God has not turned his face away from him. You are aware of the fact that you have been made new, that you have been born again. And the gospel, the good news to you, is that God has come to save you from yourself and to, to uncover, to reveal his image and likeness that you bear. Jesus' gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, is not an atonement theory. It's not an atonement theory. It's not four laws. It's not five steps. And it's not ten hoops to jump through. It's a story. It's the story that God has been writing since the foundation of the world. Those other things are models, and some of them are good, and some of them are bad. 
But the truth is that the gospel is a story, and it's the story about God drawing near to his people. The Old Testament is a story about God drawing near to his people so that he could, his people Israel, so that he could bring about a Messiah and draw near to his people, all the people of the earth. That's the story. Don't get it mixed up. So I want to come back to our key text for today. Matthew 4, 16 and 17. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is near. He has come. And when Jesus says that the kingdom is at hand, he is not referring to a place. He's not referring to a place. The kingdom of heaven is not a place. And the kingdom of heaven is not a people. It's not the church. It's not in the clouds. It's not any of those things. The kingdom of heaven is an activity. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians, he says it this way in his book, Surprised by Hope. God's kingdom in the preaching of Jesus refers not to a a post-mortem, an after-death destination, not to escape from this world into another one, but to God's sovereign rule coming on earth as it is in heaven. I know that's a mouthful. What is Professor Wright saying? He's saying that when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that word, the kingdom of heaven, and this is going to be, this will really be interesting in your groups this week. I'm excited for you to dive into this. Uh, gospel, this is just a little side note, 58% of the time that the word gospel appears in the scriptures, it's a noun, like, like news, like an announcement. But 42% of the time that gospel appears in the scriptures, it's actually a verb. It's an action. Isn't that interesting? Because we've been sold a gospel that's just an idea. We've been sold a gospel that's just an idea that doesn't have activity attached to it. But the gospel of Jesus has activity attached to it. 42% of the time, it's a verb. So I want to look at this scripture a little bit. Go back to the uh, Matthew 4 slide. So the people dwelling in darkness that Jesus is talking about here, I already mentioned that there, there are people who are living in this region of Capernaum, and they had experienced turmoil under the rule of the Assyrians. And this is going to start to make sense and actually mean something here in a minute. Um, they had longed for liberation from their cruel rulers. And Jesus comes to them saying, you have seen a great light. You have seen a great light. This great light, Christ, the light of the world, is the promise of God for all people. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus lead the people of Capernaum in a violent political uprising? But he's proclaiming their liberation. And so let me tell you what he's proclaiming to them. He's proclaiming to them that their citizenship has been transferred from people of Capernaum to people 
of the kingdom of God. And they're no longer under the thumb of the rule of the activity of the kingdom of Capernaum. They are now under the activity of the kingdom of God. This is the liberation he proclaims to them. And so some people would try to over-personalize this and say, you know, when Jesus speaks of liberation, he is speaking of your personal liberation from sin. And that's true. He has come to free you from the clutches of the evil one. He has come to free you from the powers that you are under. But he has also come to free people from oppressive powers, people groups. And so when we pray this morning for Ukraine, we're praying that these people would receive the gospel that God is near and that they would hear Jesus say, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Because that's the message of Jesus. And the next thing Jesus says is repent. And repentance is the thing that allows us to join in what God is doing. Because there, there are, you know, I hate these categories, but in progressive theology and progressive thought, there's this idea that the gospel is, uh, is a systemic thing that is freeing people from systemic powers and that it's, it's righting the systems of the world. And there's an aspect of that that is absolutely fact. And then more conservative thinkers about the gospel would say that, that the gospel, the, the purpose of it is just, it's, it's personal. It's a personal gospel for you, your individual person, your individual self, and that's how the gospel comes into the world. And Jesus is saying here that, that both are true that both are happening right now. And when he talks about repentance, Jesus is absolutely talking about a personal repentance from sin. He is absolutely talking about us acknowledging the ways that we have done violence to the image of God in ourselves and the ways that we have done violence to the image of God in other people by the things that we have said and by the things that we have done. And his call to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand is a call for us to acknowledge that in ourselves, to come before him and say, God, I'm sorry. I have done wrong in the world. And so when you hear me saying all this about God is near and God is for you and God, yes, absolutely, that is absolutely the fact. And he longs for us to turn away from our wrong perspectives, from our wrong actions, from the evil that we have partnered with in the world so that we can participate in the kingdom at hand. Because God's kingdom is extended through people. He partners with people. Yes, God acts sovereignly on his own behalf, but God longs for partnership with people and always has. And repentance is the thing that makes that available to us. And really all it is is just carrying ourselves with humility and acknowledging that we do, we mess up. We treat people poorly. We, we talk to people like they're not worth much. We overlook people. We slander them behind their backs. And repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is an invitation for us to acknowledge that 
so that we can enter into the kingdom work that God has for us. Almost there. The gospel of God is not only that Jesus came to die for your sins. He did. He did die so that your sins could be forgiven, although that's even more complex than sometimes we make it sound. But the gospel of God is that God is near, and it has come to make four things available to you and I. And if you've done the devotional this week, you've read about those four things. Those were the four things leading up to today's talk. The first of those things is the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' gospel is for the forgiveness of sins. It makes a way so that the wrong that we've done in the world can be made right. And, you know, here's a really interesting, I'm just going to throw this in as a little bit of a side, sidebar about forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. You know, because we have a, a kind of an overly individualistic picture of what the gospel is, our idea of the forgiveness of sins is that we say, God, forgive me, I have done wrong, and God says, you are forgiven, which is true. However, when Jewish people heard Jesus talk about the forgiveness of sins, in the Jewish tradition, and in most of the Jewish tradition, in Jesus' day, the forgiveness of sins involved repentance before God and making the situation right with your fellow man. That's how forgiveness was released to the Jewish people. Just, a, just food for thought. I know we're not Jewish, but we're grafted in. So if you'd like to apply that to your life, I think it's wisdom. The second point is the liberation of captives. Jesus comes to proclaim, right, light in the darkness. He comes to set people free. He comes to set people groups free from oppression. He comes to set us free from the oppression of the evil one and the powers and principalities that we have become complicit with because of the way that we've treated other people. The third thing, and this is very important, is the power to live in victory over sin. A lot of the things that Jesus talked about, this is the transformation piece. This is being born again. This is being made new. The whole point of this project is, again, for you not to remain a pile of dung, but for you to become something new that bears the image and the likeness of God. And Jesus has imparted to you by you confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. He has given you the power to live in victory over sin. And it frustrates me when people believe that Christianity is a project about managing your sin, because it's not. Christianity is not a project about managing your sin. It's a project about becoming more like Jesus and sinning less. Understood? Great. Four, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, in your devotionals this week, I, I wrote a little bit about how Paul talks about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in Romans. And he says, he actually goes so far to say that his gospel would be incomplete without the signs and wonders that he performed among the people. The, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is the linchpin for all these things because that is partnership with God. That is God coming to take up residence inside of you and teach you these things from the inside out. So listening to somebody like me drone on for 40 minutes can be helpful, but it's not as helpful as the presence of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. Because the empowerment of the Holy Spirit not only empowers you to live differently, but it actually empowers you to do the works of the kingdom. Amen. These four things, and probably some others that I missed, because I don't want a narrow reductionistic definition of the gospel, but these four things make up 
the gospel, that God is near. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. It's all four of these things. They're equally important. They're equally part of the gospel. Now, these four things are being made clear to us in four ways. And this is going to kind of describe our next four weeks of teaching. This is where we're going with this. So now that we've talked about the gospel of the kingdom, here's what we're going to talk about for the next four weeks. Jesus taught about the kingdom. And when he taught about the kingdom, he taught about it in four tenses. He taught about it in four tenses. So, you know, we say like tenses like past, present, future, right? Jesus taught about the kingdom in four tenses. And here they are. The kingdom of God will come. So the kingdom of God is a future reality that, that will be made real to us in the future. But he also said that the kingdom of God has come. So Jesus makes statements that, that say, I have come and I have established God's kingdom here on earth. The kingdom of God has come. It's a finished work, but it's also future. Uh, the kingdom of God is coming immediately. So Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's close enough to touch is what he's saying when he says that. So, so the activity of God is, is hovering just right above you, and it's here. It's here for us to grab onto. It's here, and we see it made manifest in, in words of wisdom and words of prophecy and healing and supernatural breakthrough. And, and we see it made manifest in uh, a friend showing up uh, in a timely manner for us to speak a word when we've had something tragic happen in our lives. And it, it, it's made manifest in all these different ways. That is the kingdom coming immediately. And then the final tense that Jesus speaks about the kingdom in is that, and you don't have to remember all this right now. You can you know, maybe write these four things down, but we're going to really dive deep into these things over the next few weeks. The kingdom of God has been delayed. And this isn't one that we love to talk about. But there is a reality present in the parables of Jesus and in the teaching of Jesus that he has a theology of the delay of the kingdom, that it does not always come immediately, and we have not seen it in fullness yet, but we will. So these are the four tenses of the kingdom. And what I want to do is just close with this. I want to ask you, do you really believe that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Do you believe that God is near? Do you believe he's near to you? I confessed in the beginning of this message that sometimes I don't. Pray for me. <laughs> I don't think that you always do either. That's why, that's why we're in beloved community with one another. Because when I forget that God is near, you're here to remind me that God is near. And when you forget that God is near, I'm here to tell you that God is near for 45 minutes. We proclaim... And we demonstrate. We proclaim and we demonstrate this gospel. And, and proclaiming the gospel, it's news. It's good news. And so we share the news and we have a bad perspective on the news. Most of the news that we hear today comes from people who are trying to shape our hearts toward their political tribe. But news, in the realest sense, is an announcement it's an announcement. And, and we have a picture of evangelism that we have kind of twisted up, and it's become about something like counting how many people got saved. But the truth about evangelism is that evangelism is just about proclaiming the news. We just share the news. God is near. I just evangelized all of you. God is near. 
That's the news. Now, of course, we want people to respond to the news, right? But, but we don't manipulate them to get them to respond to the news. We share the news with an open hand and say, this is the news. God has been made king of the universe. So here's what I want you to leave with. I have a little acronym for you. I wish John was in the room for this because he loves acronyms. So I made an acronym. It's BORN. BORN is the word that I want you to remember. Our, our demonstration of the kingdom, first and foremost, needs to be bold. That's the B. It needs to be bold. When we demonstrate the kingdom of God, uh, it's bold. And bold for you isn't the same as bold for someone else. Bold for you isn't the same as bold for someone else, but we're stepping out. We're demonstrating the kingdom. And maybe it's just coming to someone who is, has fallen on hard times and we're saying, God is near and I'm willing to be the vehicle. And other times it looks like John and you pray for every server that you have in every restaurant that you ever go to, ever. <laughs> bold. Otherworldly, that's O, otherworldly. When we demonstrate the kingdom of God, it's not by our own power and it's not with our own words. It's not our own great strategies. It's not our own ideas. We're not manipulating people and we're not convincing them. But it's, it's ideas that come from the Spirit of God. No, uh, the, the R is risky. Risky. We talk about risk here a lot, right? R-I-S-K. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. You ever heard that? Risky. Demonstrating the kingdom costs us something. And it might be our reputation and it might be our life. But demonstrating the kingdom is not something that we do with our safety in mind. It's risky. And finally, end, nonviolent. Demonstrating the kingdom. I want to be really clear about what I mean by this. Demonstrating the kingdom does no harm to the image of God in other people. Because that's not the gospel. And so, you know, the Crusaders, Josh reminded me, this is a good picture. The Crusaders had the wrong idea. So have you ever seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven with Orlando Bloom and Liam Neeson like 15 years ago? It kind of stinks, but um, <laughs> they had the wrong idea. It's the wrong picture of what the kingdom of heaven is. The kingdom coming, demonstrating the kingdom, it doesn't do violence to the image of God and other people. It redeems it. It redeems it. Like, remember the picture from the Bible Project video where, they get, where the, the guy goes to hit Jesus and then he you know, like touches him or whatever and he, they both turn white? That's the picture of the kingdom. It doesn't do violence to the image of God and other people. So God is near. Worship team, come on up. I'm just going to pray us into worship. God, I ask that you would, would everybody, if you can, if you're able, would you stand with us as we, as we start worshiping again. and God, would you draw near? Lord, I, whatever you want it to look like, Holy Spirit, whatever you want to do in this room, whatever you want to do with us, we just ask that you would be near, that you would be near to us, that you would be transforming us from the inside out. And, and Jesus, I thank you that, that you draw near to those of us who are in situations where we cannot see you yet. Maybe we're having a, a, a kingdom is delayed moment. 
but maybe the kingdom is coming immediately and you're in breakthrough and you are just living in, you're living in it. Wonderful, bless you. Pray for your neighbor to experience the same thing. We love you, God. Amen.